do you know what really happened that day at the chalet? No. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new season of The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year and breaking down the state of the 2024 Oscars race. Woo, cue the applause. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall, and joining me this week for the very first episode of the new season are EW Senior Writer and our resident Oscars expert, Joey Nolfi, and Senior Writer, Maureen Lee Linker. Hello. Hello to you both. How are you? I am so good. <laughs> I'm good. I was trying to snap for you, Jared, when you re- I heard requested him a little bit. applause. I, heard him. I tried. I yeah, tried. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I heard it. I heard it. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm so happy to have you guys here this week. We have a lot to talk about. Before we get to all of it, though, I want to start with some really cool news uh, this week from the Motion Picture Academy, as well as its museum. They are presenting Howard University with a replacement of Hattie McDaniel's Best Supporting Actress Oscar, which has been lost for decades. Uh, it was part of Hattie's will. She wanted it to go to Howard. They had it. It's gone. No one knows where Ooh. it is. Um, Joey, this may not seem like a big deal to a lot of people. Things get lost. It happens. But please explain why this really is a big deal. Oh, yeah. it's. A, I think it's a huge deal, too. I, I mean, they. Uh, I think the, the fact that they're giving it to Howard University in accordance with Hattie's will is a huge deal. And I think that a lot of that had to do probably, I want to say, with Felicia Rashad being the dean of the drama school. I mean, she probably had a huge mm-hmm. hand in, in pushing for this. Because, uh, I mean, it's it, marking this very historical precedent of Hattie, who in 1940, at the 1940 ceremony, became the first Black person to ever win an Oscar for her supporting performance in Gone with the Wind. And then, unfortunately, she died in 1952. But as I said, her will stated that she wanted the Oscar to go to Howard. But the plaque, it was a it was a plaque, we have to clarify, because right. back then they did not yeah. give out the actual statuettes that we know today. But I think it went missing around like the late 60s, early 70s. I think it was sort of determined to be like, where the hell is this? Which is like, completely insane but i think honoring it and replacing it it's it's long overdue i mean can you imagine like meryl streep's oscar being lost in the academy taking 50 years to replace it it just that would it would just not happen but i'm glad that it finally which which one though which which one of the three are you talking about i'm kidding (laughs) i'm gonna say the one she Uh, deserved most and leave it to you to determine which one that is So go to EW on Twitter and you can vote in that poll. Yes. <laughs> we, oh, yes honestly, we, we should put up that poll. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, this is this is just such great news. And, and Maureen, as a uh, as a film history buff, I'm sure you're excited. Oh, I'm thrilled. I mean, uh, the movie that really got me into film history and Oscars history was Gone with the Wind. Like mm. that was the gateway drug. <laughs> it's still one of my all time favorites um, in spite of you know, lots of complications yeah. that I yeah. didn't necessarily understand as a child. Um, but it's fantastic that Hannah McDaniel's being recognized in this way, that she's finally getting what she's due. A hundred percent. 
Uh, the reason I do have um, Joey and Maureen uh, specifically on this first episode is because the both of them were on the ground for us at two of the recent fall festivals, which are considered, you know, really the kickoff to not just fall movie season, but also the Oscars race. Maureen was at Telluride, where she saw and reviewed about a, about a dozen films, and Joey was at Toronto, where he also saw lots of films and was reporting out of uh, screenings and press conferences, and you can see all of their coverage at EW.com. But uh, this week, I'd like to recap those festivals and your experiences, get your take on what people were talking talking about and what seemed to play well and maybe not play so well um, uh, with those specific festival <laughs> audiences. Uh, so before we dive into that, I also just want to uh, make sure everyone knows that later in the episode, I sit down with Sandra Ula, who stars in two contenders this year, Anatomy of a Fall and The Zone of Interest, uh, the former of which opens in a couple weeks, and it's generating a lot of buzz for her um, kind of stoically captivating performance as a woman on trial for her husband's death. It kind of reminds me her performance of, of like what Helen Mirren did in the queen. You know, you have this woman who doesn't show much, but there is a lot going on. Um, so let's start there with Sandra. Um, Anatomy of a Fall played at both Telluride over Labor Day weekend. And then the week or so uh, later at Toronto. Uh, so Maureen, I'll start with you. What is your take on uh, Sandra's work here in Anatomy of a Fall? Yeah, I think she's absolutely magnificent in it. Um, just this really grounded, stoic, as you say, performance. It really harkens back to classic courtroom dramas, mm. like something like uh, Witness for the Prosecution with Marlena Dietrich um, and uh, or Anatomy of a Murder, which I'm certain that this must borrow its title from. Yeah. You know, and I don't think we necessarily see courtroom dramas in that vein anymore where they're not like super histrionic uh, and are this like composed. Um, and so I really loved that aspect of it. it. It it draws you in in a way where you never actually know <laughs> yep. if she did it or not <laughs> or what she's thinking. And I yeah. think she sells that really, really well. And ultimately, it doesn't matter um, what actually happened. It's the it's the it's the exploration of that that is so fascinating and intriguing. Mm -hmm. uh, and something I even brought up to her that I did not realize, you know, in American courtrooms, uh, a, a person takes a stand. Uh, you know, they're they're questioned by the prosecution and and by their own uh, attorney um, or vice versa, whoever you're the witness for. Um, in these French courtrooms, the the uh, person on trial, she gets to basically immediately respond. Uh, she doesn't have to wait to be put on the stand. Um, and it's really fascinating how that kind of also uh, alters the story flow and and uh, the the action really. But um, yeah, what um, what did you kind of feel overall at Telluride was the the reception to not just her work but the film? Uh yeah, I think overall people were very excited about it. Um, there was a lot of buzz going into the festival because mm -hmm. it had done so well at con and um and a lot of people had seen it there and were yeah. going to see it again at Telluride because they enjoyed it so much uh earlier in the summer and um and the people who had it were like really eager to finally get the chance to see it i think you know some other stuff might have ended up overshadowing it at Telluride but Overall, I think the response was a positive one. People were really thrilled about it going into it and came out 
I think, feeling satisfied overall. Got it. We'll get into what some of those other movies were in just a second. Um, worth noting, by the way, that that Anatomy did win at, and I appreciate that you're saying the proper French pronunciation of Khan. Uh, it won. years of high school French got to count for something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, it won the top prize there. Her other film, uh, The Zone of Interest, won what is essentially second place at that festival. Um, Joey, uh, well, I believe all three of us have seen The Zone of Interest at this point, but um, Joey, your thoughts on her in that film and that movie? I sorry, I have a long sigh there because it's it's yeah. uh, I find it a hard one to talk about and watch. Yeah, no, me too. I mean, I think that Sandra, I, I think she's fine in the movie. Well, she's better than fine. Like she, she's great in the movie as she usually is. I just think the thing working against this movie is a little bit more complex. I mean, it was not screened by A twenty four prior to TIFF outside of its can or I'm sorry, con showing. Um, <laughs> but I, I think for for good reason, I think that this movie is going to polarize people as it starts to expand beyond, yeah. um, you know, con and the TIFF bubble. It's it's a very difficult sit. It's complex. It's challenging. It's not a pleasant film. Uh, I mean, I think my my issue with it was, I think in the first 20 minutes, it really hits it on the head strong. It's like, okay, with what's going on in right-wing Europe and right-wing domestic America, it's like these people mm-hmm. look very docile and domestic on the surface, but actually underneath it all, they're fucking Nazis. So it's like, I mean, yep. <laughs> like I get it, yep. but like, how do you turn that into a two hour movie? And I think that's where it starts to get really difficult. But that aside, like performance, Sandra's great. I think that um, we'll see if that one can sort of translate good critical standing into actual best picture votes, which I'm not sure that it can do, given yeah. that I don't think it's a generally yeah. wide-reaching movie. But if it does, I think it will only bolster Sandra's rise for Anatomy of a Fall. Like, if she's in this year, it's it's not for Zone, it's for Anatomy. Yeah. It, it's interesting, in a way, I after a couple days of reluctantly thinking about zone of interest because uh, I like couldn't shake it. I, I kind of like came to a conclusion for myself that it's, it's almost like a horror film in uh, not in like it's well, the score you know, jump too, scares yeah. or whatever, not that kind of, the but, yeah, the, yeah. the score, yeah, yeah, the, all yeah. of that. Like ultimately I walked away feeling emotionally after that movie, the way I do after watching a horror movie, yeah. like a really mm-hmm. good horror movie mm-hmm. um, because it's just so, uh, <laughs> disgusting in in yeah. you know exploring you know and and like living oh, in this, this experience of these people who yeah are nazis living right outside the walls of Auschwitz. with the coat and the oh oh yeah oof. it's just i think also what's really what really moved me about the film is the fact that you walk away feeling like you watched a horror film yeah. but never actually witnessing anything right. truly yeah. horrific uh-huh. Um, and the score does a lot of work Ooh, towards that yeah. for sure. Um, but that that's what stayed with me. And you, and you hear gunshots in the distance and you hear screams and you see the smoke oh, coming out of the crematorium. Out it's just, the, oh, yeah, yeah, the window. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's, it's tough. It's, tough. it's a tough, tough watch. But I will say that's the only one I actually noticed people walk out of that time. <gasps> right? Really? And, and I think, I think there were more polarizing films in terms of provocation Mm -hmm. and content but that was the one that i think people just couldn't get through and i understand like i really um 
this is weirdly a compliment to the film because it yeah. means it was effective, but I felt sick to my stomach after watching oh, 100%, it. 100%. 100%. I was sitting at my desk. I think I was um, on Slack with you after I got home, and I said, I, my stomach, I feel like I'm going to vomit. I, I've, n- I've never felt that kind of physical reaction to a movie before. Yeah, and again, that that is totally built through mm-hmm. um, all that is suggested mm-hmm. and yeah. these performances and the score and not at all through something like a Schindler's List where you actually see with your own eyes the horrors of this experience yeah. that these people ha- suffered. Yeah. Okay, yeah. the way Maureen just talked about this movie made me actually like it a lot more. Okay, so, see, it, oh, well, congrats, so that's that's <laughs> that is what I think is so interesting about this movie is because I, I don't necessarily ever want to tell someone like don't see a movie. I think, you know, everyone takes away something different oh, from everyone the film. should see it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Um but something I will note to pay attention to is that we never see the actors in close up. They're always these like medium shots or wide shots. And I think that's very intentional because mm. I, 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 mm-hmm. I could be very wrong. This is my theory is that the director, Jonathan Glazer, did not want did not want to give you a close up on them because they, it almost like in, invites you in humanizes them, them a bit more. It Right. It humanizes them. It, it gives you someone uh, more uh, easily identifiable to potentially sympathize or empathize with. So um, I found that really interesting uh, and, and I appreciate and respect that. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those where I encourage everyone to see it. Uh, I will personally never watch it again because yeah, I, I do not want to so. have that yeah. physical and emotional experience repeated. <laughs> yep, yep, agree. Okay, yeah. so Maureen, you saw people walk out of that one, but um, let, let's talk about what were one or two oh, other specific really cool. uh, like titles or performances out of Telluride that you think you know emerged from the Colorado Mountains as like the best reviewed and have the best shot at legit awards contention. Yeah, so I think there's a there's a few. The most beloved of Telluride was definitely Poor Things, the Yorgos Lanthimos film, um, which was interesting because I really did expect that to have walkouts and be very polarizing because it, it certainly has content that could do that. Um, but it seemed to be a critical darling across the board, came out of Telluride with 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not yeah. that I use that as a barometer for much, but, <laughs> yeah, but it does show you that the critics at Telluride liked the movie. Yeah, That's- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Worth noting, by the way, that Yorgos was re- uh, receiving a- an honor from the festival. So I don't know if that had any impact given that like he was there and, and whatnot. With but- people who already uh, were fans of his work. And um and I, I, I love that. Other ones that seemed uh, clear favorites, uh, people really responded strongly to Zone and Anatomy of a Fall. But uh, a, one that I heard everyone raving about, which I also loved, was The Holdovers, the new Alexander Payne film, um, which feels very, it still feels like an Alexander Payne movie, but it feels very different too. It's by far his most earnest and sentimental work that he's ever done. Um, and then a film that I think you either absolutely adore or you absolutely hate, and it certainly got that reaction at Telluride, was Saltburn, the new oh. Emerald Fennel movie. Oh. oh, I love it so much. <laughs> Me I think too. It's, oh, I, I think it's wait, my number one. I can't one. wait. I can't oh, wait. Joey, I, I know. And as soon as I you can't can't walk out of that one. theater, like, we, we need to text and talk about it. Uh, it's, yeah, it's my number coming. one film. Oh, it's my number one film so far that I've seen uh, this, this year of Contenders. Uh, that's that's so interesting uh, that, uh, yeah, I, okay, so uh, to the point of you said it was polarizing, do you think 
Telluride was the right spot to debut that film? You know what? That's a really good question because I don't look, think it I would. It doesn't. I also, <laughs> I would argue that Poor Things is equally full of provocation as Saltburn and Zone and, for, and Zone, and for some reason, people were not turned off by it in Poor Things, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were in Saltburn, and I, I find it very odd because I actually think. Saltburn handles the subversive and the provocation more effectively than Poor Things, even though I quite enjoyed both films. Yeah, Poor Things is very in your face. Yeah, and Saltburn is not as much, except when it is, it chooses its moments wisely, but it it isn't like constantly slamming Mm -hmm. you with things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I don't actually know that I can answer that question because the audience clearly liked one version of it and yeah. didn't respond to the other in the same way. Mm-hmm. I do think Telluride is a better place for it than like a very big community festival like Toronto, where a lot of the mm-hmm. public who might be turned off by it would be the first people reacting to it. Mm, yeah. That's why I, I wondered if, if Venice mm-hmm. was a better spot for Saltburn. No, I actually was, well, it's it's, a, it's funny that you say that. Cause I was actually going to say, I think that it would make more sense somewhere like Toronto or I, I actually, my first instinct is Sundance, which is where promising yeah. young woman debuted. I think Sundance would have probably been the best choice for this just because I think people like you're saying, they're more receptive to these sort of provocations than, uh, a sort of higher brow crowd and Saltburn definitely seems like something that's going to thrive on uh, like the weirdos liking it. And I am <laughs> hoping that, you know, that's what carries it through because um, I'm definitely a freaking weirdo. And I, as soon as I saw a promising young woman, I was just like, this is the best yeah. thing I've ever seen in my life. Although I've heard it's like good for weirdos in a different way than promising young woman it was. It is because but, uh-huh. I hated promising uh-huh. young woman and I am <gasps> obsessed with Saltburn. So well, see, I there think you then, go. And that, <laughs> In that note, like I think, um, like Saltburn to me feels like a Midnight Madness TIFF movie. I think it could have worked. <laughs> it I think it could have worked there. Yeah, yeah. I think it yeah. could have worked there. Um, I, th- I think especially since we're seeing Midnight Mad- Madness sort of lean, a, I guess you could yeah. say arguably more prestige than it has in the past. For, um, so I, I could definitely see that. But I think, it, yeah, in the long run, I don't think it really matters. I think the movie's going to do what the movie's going to do. So also. I think the fact that Poor Things premiered at Venice first and then um, screened at Telluride probably had an impact because it got such positive uh, word of mouth out of Venice that I don't think – I think that swayed people in Telluride, whereas Saltburn truly premiered at Telluride. Yeah. And I think, by the way, they will be a fascinating double feature. Yes. Oh, I think watch both movies back to back. I'm good. That's how I'm good. The next time I watch it, that's that's the way I'm going to do it. Um, okay, so Joey, I have the same question for you about Toronto. What titles did you find to be the the buzziest? Which ones were audiences really talking about? Um, well, I do also want to say that, and I don't know, I don't think this one went to TIFF, but uh, I also want to point out All of Us Strangers, the Andrew High movie. Um, I think yes. that could also be a screenplay contender, maybe nothing beyond that, but I yeah. think screenplay, it's definitely in the race there. Um, my favorite out of Toronto, it's actually, okay, so, I, I mean, outside of the Nickelback documentary, of course, <laughs> future 
best picture winning Nickelback <laughs> documentary, which I do. I did cry at. I'm not even going to lie. It's not the best movie I've seen, but it, uh, I did cry at one particular point. They use the song photograph in a very mm. eloquent way that moved me to tears. So um, I will okay. just let you all see that when it has <laughs> distribution, which it currently does not. Uh, but my personal favorite things that I saw, it's actually yeah, two movies neither of which I think are awards contenders, but Sally El Hosseini's uh, Unicorns, which is about mm-hmm. a drag queen who falls in love with a sort of down-on-his-luck British straight man, uh, which I do have to preface and say, my friend Sophia worked on the film, and I wasn't planning on seeing it, and I ran into her on the street, and she was like, please come to my movie, come to my movie. And I was like, I don't know, I don't have time. And I was like, okay, I'll go. So I went, and I was blown away by this thing, truly. I'm not just saying that because she's my friend, but I do have to be transparent about that. Um, and then sure. also... Netflix's Reptile actually was my favorite thing that I saw, um, starring Benicio del Toro, wow. Alicia Silverstone, and Justin that. Timberlake. Jared, I loved this movie. I'm, How I, is it's Justin? Like, yeah. uh, so, like, I think truly he is. I mean, he's obviously like slimy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> J- Janet Jackson, uh, the whole Britney Spears thing. Like, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm like praising this sort of semi problematic human, <laughs> problematic man. Yes, but like, I mean, he's good in it. He's good as like this douchey sort of like dude. And Benicio, what an underrated actor! He's I, great. I, he yeah. is so good in this. Alicia, mm-hmm. I have been championing the Alicia Silverstone Assange. Four years. Yeah. Killing of a sacred deer. Like, come on, mama. She is coming. We're going to see her as an Oscar nominee someday. I truly think if she keeps playing parts like this, because this, yep. uh, she's, she takes a role that is, it could have just been this throwaway, dutiful wife woman. And she completely, she is doing so much under the surface in this movie. She is so good in this. Uh, and I, I just think it's really pulpy. It has surprising heart and a lot of really good humor in it, too. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I I adored it. I absolutely adored that movie. So, yeah, two non-Oscar movies, though, are, were ended up being my favorite things at TIFF this year. But, like, technically best constructed film would be Zone. Yeah, I, yeah, I really enjoyed Reptile. Uh, also, a first-time filmmaker who's worked in uh, you know music videos for years, and uh, you know really looks oh, yeah. to um, yeah, he looks to uh, David Fincher as uh, you know a. Uh, mm. um, this an movie example feels like Gone uh, for, for sure. His, I was about. Yeah, I, was, yeah, I, I was, got the, that yeah. vibe from the trailer, so I oh, wonder yeah. if that carried over. <laughs> yep, it's definitely inspired by a Gone Girl. Yeah, um, you know, there's a real like, uh, you know, who done it really at the at the center of this. Um, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, and like you said, it's uh, on Netflix. Okay, so um, so let's talk here about you know, like I said, uh, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos got a, got an honor at Telluride. The festival doesn't really give out um awards, um, but Toronto does, and the big one is the People's Choice Award, which is voted on by audiences. So Joey, take us through the winners of the big category, and and uh, you know, kind of. Tell us how that's going to factor into the months ahead. Yeah. I, I think it's, we have to preface it by saying that TIFF was a super light awards festival this year. It seemed like a, that a mm-hmm. lot of the really celebrity-driven awards yep. titles that otherwise outside of a strike year would have gone to TIFF didn't, like Maestro, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yep. I, I think I was, out of all of these, I was shocked that Poor Things did not go to TIFF. That is a TIFF mm-hmm. movie, like 100%. Yep. I am oh, shocked sure. that it didn't go there. Um, but... The People's Choice Award was American Fiction by Cord Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, 
obviously just given the historical precedence of that award that has gone to like nearly all best picture winners or nominees virtually every year for like the last 20 years you can't that is now by default a part of the best picture conversation they also have just recently shifted the release date of this movie after its success in toronto so i don't think anybody was expecting it to really do that well there so i think american fiction is now a legitimate contender but then also like we were saying before with midnight madness sort of becoming more prestige um i don't know if you can call dicks the musical a prestige film (laughs) but it did win the midnight madness people's (sighs) choice award and i think that that's very telling they also pushed that movie's release date i think to sort of uh prepare for this um I, I think that that movie is a strong best original song contender. And <laughs> yeah. I also like my personal, like best supporting actress uh, favorite right now, as before I see a lot of these other things this year is Megan Mullally in this movie. Yeah. She is so good. She yeah. is doing a performance. Unlike literally you cannot name another performance in film history that is like what she is doing here. And I know no. for a fact, there is definitely not another scene like what she does <laughs> at the end of this movie that had me. It's I was, so I have absurd. never in my life spent yeah. this long laughing at an image in a movie, like to the point where <laughs> we were like four scenes down the line and I was still laughing about mm. it like literal tears coming out of my eyes laughing at that she's so good nathan lane is good in it too but i think yeah dicks the musical it's now on the radar and in, in at least best original song but then we also got to the um the tribute awards so again an odd mix because this is usually where we get past oscar winners slash nominees recognized here but i think the only one that we can really look at right now who won a tribute award is Coleman Domingo, but not for the film that he won for. Um, right. Yeah. He, he won for Sing Sing, which isn't coming which out until next year. He's phenomenal in. Oh my God. Yeah, he's, so he's, he's so good. He's so good. But like, yeah. I mean, he couldn't promote Rustin, even though it was no. active, but we all yeah. know that he really won this award for Rustin. Uh, <laughs> right. It's, you know, right. he's playing a queer rights activist in a real life biopic. That's exactly the kind of real life performance the Academy loves. It's one of those rules that has carried over no matter how much the Academy diversifies in terms of like yeah. perspective of their votership. They love real people yeah. playing real people. So yeah. um, even though it did not win anything. Yeah. And and he's also great, by the way, in Rustin. I, I'm not trying to take away yeah. from that performance. They're very different performances. Rustin's a very, mm-hmm. I would say, like showy performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, this this gentleman oh, has a big personality like, yeah. and that that yeah, and that really comes and through. He's certainly the the reason to watch Rustin. Like his Absolutely. performance is fantastic. And the the rest of the movie around him is simply not as strong. So mm-hmm. I actually did. I, I, a lot of the, the TIFF movies this year, like we were only there for a few days and a lot of them were playing after we left. So I like, I actually didn't yeah. get to see that at TIFF, but I, another one I didn't get to see cause it conflicted was, um, even though it didn't win anything, I, I just want to call out Nyad, um, the Annette yeah. Benning and Jodie Foster. That mm-hmm. appears to be a big push for Netflix. So I yep. think that They're they great. are definitely in contention this year. And I also want to call out one more TIFF movie, um, which I think it also played somewhere else. Um, I think it was Venice, but uh, Ava DuVernay's Origin. Uh, it was announced yeah. to be playing TIFF, I think, the the day that I left TIFF. <laughs> yeah. uh, after the festival began, they were like, surprise, Ava's going to be there. I was like, what? Why would you do it like this? But um, <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people did end up missing it. But 
it's getting decent reviews. It's making the festival rounds. So uh, I think be on the lookout for that one. Performances by John Bernthal, Anjanue Ellis to maybe make some waves um, in the weeks ahead. So we'll see how that one shakes out too. And I, um, Nyad was at Telluride as well. Um, and I definitely think similar to Rustin, uh, the most mileage they're going to get is out of the Jodie Foster and Annette Benning performance as the movie as a whole is not particularly strong. Um, I actually think Jodie runs away with the movie. It's just so <gasps> fun to see her in sort of classic Jodie Foster movie star <gasps> mode. Like she just has this ease. Oh, and you're going to make me pass out. she has has this comfort on screen that i haven't seen her have in a really long time and it was such a joy to watch and that certainly has the showier performance um but jody is the one you can't take your eyes off (sighs) maureen passed making me pass out two times yeah (laughs) (laughs) but keep in mind for a lot of the movie annette's in the water so jody's the one who we see uh who's able to to speak and stuff so yeah she's she's great she really um uh, she's just really magnetic in this, and uh, I I just wanted more of her. Um, and and their say she's uh, making their, waves. their friendship. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Yes. indeed, indeed. I'm here for the puns. Here for the puns. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's fantastic. Uh, also, want to mention quickly uh, Venice Film Festival, which has wrapped as well. Uh, the Golden Lion, the top award, went to Poor Things, which we've talked about a bit. Uh, Best Actress went to Kaylee Spaney from right, uh, Priscilla. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She plays Priscilla Presley in Priscilla. And Best Actor went to Peter Sarsgaard for Memory, a film that has no distribution yet. Um, Maureen, you covered. Elvis for us last year. I, I got to know, like, did that movie leave you like wanting more of the story, wanting to know more about Priscilla and, and, and their courtship and relationship? Absolutely. I think she really got short shrift in Elvis. Um, <laughs> yeah, she b- barely had a personality really um, besides a bouffant. Um, mm-hmm. And <laughs> and like, no, and that's no disrespect to the, the actress in that film. It was just like, seriously underwritten um and um and so and it is a really complex story that priscilla has talked about herself about how young she was when they first started their romance and um yeah how she really got into this marriage that she was not prepared for in a lot of ways Mm. that was manufactured by the colonel and i think we missed so much of that in Elvis because it was focused so much more on the dynamic and the relationship between Elvis yeah. and Colonel Parker. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, that wasn't the movie that was going to explore that relationship. And so I'm thrilled that we are getting a film that is about exploring that relationship and one made by a female director so that yeah. we are getting no more men making movies. so that we're getting the the female point of view in a women's story for sure 100 percent. and i love that jared was just like oh skip over the sofia coppola stand and just ask maureen about priscilla (laughs) look i was just trying to tie it in because she covered elvis for us but no because i know know where you stand on (laughs) sofia coppola you you bow at the altar of (laughs) i just want to say that we do have to point out that kaylee won best actress at venice which 
mm-hmm. as we've seen with Emma Stone and La La Land, Joaquin Phoenix and Joker, Colin Farrell for Banshees, Willem Dafoe for Eternity's Gate, Olivia Coleman and The Favorite, Kate Blanchett and Star, and many, many, many more. At least one mm-hmm. actor or actress nominee or winner is president. It's is not president. I wish Kate Blanchett was president <laughs> of something. Um, is present <laughs> at the Venice Awards every year, and this year yeah. it looks like Kaylee is probably going to be that versus Peter from memory. I, like I don't know. Well, who knows if it will even come out this year. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That might be a contender next year. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, Joey, I'm going to put you on the spot to give me a title here. Which movie or performance? Did I hate it at TIFF? Oh, I'm ready. No, no. (laughs) Um, Which one, which which movie or performance do you think has gained the biggest momentum from Fall Festival Circuit? Keeping in mind, of course, that New York Film Festival is just getting underway. I think uh, on stats and awards wins alone, I think American Fiction, um, Kaylee Spaney, Poor Things, and Coleman Domingo. I think those four things. Um, The Holdovers and Saltburn seem to be the ones that stand to gain the most word of mouth. And we'll probably be talking about those a lot soon. Yeah, yeah. And I can actually see a world where Paul Giamatti gets a lot of attention because it's such mm-hmm. a great performance. Payne did not write this script, which is rare for him. Right. Um, so the screenwriter could garner a lot of attention instead. And Divine Joy Randolph is also fantastic oh, in the film. She's incredible. She's great. Yep. She's great. She's great. What a wonderful actress, yeah. I think that'll be an audience fave. Like, I think it's going to play yeah. well this holiday season. Whereas, Definitely. like... Over Thanksgiving with Grandma, I don't think you're going to Saltburn. I mean, you might. (laughs) Maybe Grandma wants some bloody oral sex, but... (laughs) Wait, what? Wait, I'm trying to... Oh, my God, wait. Uh, Yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) Maureen's third thing. Make me pass out. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a conversation we'll have for um, another podcast. Sounds like a great time to jump to a break. So coming up, Anatomy of a Fall and the Zone of Interest star, Sandra Ula. The awardist will be right back. Welcome back to The Awardist. All right, folks, it is now time for the main event, my interview with the fantastic star of Anatomy of a Fall and the Zone of Interest, Sandra Ula. Sandra Hula, thank you so much for joining me here on The Awardist. It is really such a pleasure to have you. And and congratulations on all of the uh, really wonderful praise of your performance and this movie. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I, I suspect you may have felt some similar warmth for Tony Erdman, which U.S. audiences may uh, know you for that uh, was out, gosh, several years ago. Uh, and you've been working primarily in uh, Europe for the last 25 years or so. But have you felt something different here with Anatomy of a Fall, especially given that the movie won the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival this year? Yes, I I definitely sense that there's a, yeah, I sense a difference. There's a lot more going on than in 2016. There are a lot more interviews. Yeah. Well, and it's also worth noting that um, the zone of interest in which you also star, uh, that'll be out later this year. Uh, it's directed by Jonathan Glazer. That won what is considered second place at Cannes, uh, the Grand Prix. So uh, the Cannes Film Festival this year was a great place for you. Yes, we had a great time, everybody. It was a bit sometimes not so easy to connect to both teams, but uh, we managed. So everybody was happy yeah, well, and now, of course, audiences are, uh, folks are starting to get to see these films, uh, where you, you play two very different characters, very different, uh, performances. Did you personally get something different from each of these performances in terms of 
artistic fulfillment and, and character exploration? You know, I think that's really what the this profession is about, to do things as differently as possible. So I consider myself very lucky that I had the opportunity to work with both directors and to portray such definitely different uh, women. But in terms of fulfillment, I have to say, yeah, it's basically the same, although on a very different level. Because I think that Sandra Verteur and Anatomy of a Fall, I feel very much closer to her than to Hedwig Hess, obviously. And the work on Zone of Interest, on one level, it was more of a technical one, like a physical approach to this character, or maybe even to, it wasn't even a character in that sense, but more of that, um, that element of the film. I would say it like that. Yeah, I think. On the other hand, it was also a lot about community and a lot about being in this place in Poland, um, being in Oswiecim and close to the memorial of Auschwitz and to just be present in this place. Mm-hmm. You said uh, that you, you feel closer um, to, to Sandra. Uh, I'm guessing for many reasons, but among them, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, Justine Trier, with whom you had previously worked on Sybil, wrote this role for you. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what she says. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, what a gift. Uh, but but second, I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't assume this, but I wonder if that could, could make uh, a person a little more nervous in terms of wanting to really deliver on what a writer is hoping and expecting from you. Yes, I understand that question. Sometimes it's like that. There's a certain pressure going on. But in this case, it wasn't that way because I knew that she was very sure that I was capable of doing this work. And sometimes when somebody writes for you, it it can go wrong because the characters are too close because it's not really a challenge in the first place. And also because sometimes people assume things that are just not right. And you have to deal with your, with projections that, you know, that you just can't, they're not real. And, um, in this case, I think she didn't write it for me as a person, but as an actor. And, uh, I don't think she thinks that this person is close to me. I think it's more my way of approaching work that she felt was maybe right. Mm, okay, that makes complete sense. Well, so at the center of this film uh, is is a a death. Uh, Sandra's husband dies. We are questioning throughout: was it? Uh, did he take his own life? Did she kill him? Was it an accident? But in the bigger picture of things, it is this really wonderful examination of relationships and perceptions and judgment and truth, both our own truth and the actual reality of situations and experiences. And through all of that, we are, we, the audience are really left questioning what everyone, especially Sandra says. So I'm curious what questions you recall having about Sandra and the script after you read it the first time. What I really enjoyed was the fact that I was like moved from one side to the other all the time if I thought that she was innocent, whatever that means. Also, if if I believed her or not. And I constantly had to question my own projections on her 
the script constantly mirrored back my own opinion about certain behavior or certain narratives or things that she said. And I found the way that Justine is playing with those projections really masterful. Mm-hmm. I, I'm so glad to hear you say that because it's sitting sitting in the theater, I felt that same kind of, it was like a bit of a, watching a bit of a tennis match in those regards. Like over here is what you think, she's innocent, over here she did it. And I was like, ah, I don't know what to think. And I love that about the movie. Okay, so then when it came time for you to dive into the performance did you um did you have to draw a hard line then about those questions and and change your focus in any way or did you did you keep all of that in in your mind the beauty of working with justine has so much to do with really trying to find the way through it so there is no right or wrong we are basically collecting material and as many options as possible so that you know when you start a film and we were shooting almost in the right order of scenes when you start you never know where you will end so that she would have the possibility when she would edit later that she can make other decisions than she had in mind when we started So to answer your questions properly, yeah, the questions stayed with us all the time. One of the beautiful things about your performance, I think, and it's it's a real feat, is that we never know what Sandra is really thinking. And I say that's a feat because sometimes when you watch performances, you can see the actor thinking about movements, thinking about what comes next, and and it can it can take the audience out of the story. Um, but it, but in those regards about never leaning too hard one way or the other with what actually happened, how did that complicate your job? Well, I wouldn't say it complicated it. It was hard work, obviously, but it made the joy of working bigger because there was more space to explore. You know, I I started working as an actor in theater, so I am used to rehearsals, to make mistakes, to find the wrong path and realizing it two days later, and then you start from another angle. So this kind of working fits really close to me, and I enjoy it very much. So it didn't make it complicated in that sense. I love the focus, the concentration that comes with this sort of working because you have to be present all the time and you can't hide at any moment because the responsibility for the character is so high. Yeah, I think I enjoyed it more mm-hmm. through this uh, way of working. It's interesting that you said, you know, your work in theater because there are there are moments when I was watching this that I thought uh, I could absolutely see this being a stage play as well. Um, uh, but so all of that said, uh, w- was this was this a project where you did a lot of rehearsal or did you leave some things to kind of spontaneity and in the moment? No, we didn't rehearse so much. Justine also likes to take the first takes as soon as the camera is ready. She loves to film rehearsals because, you know, the first impulse sometimes is the right one. And then we go on collecting material and then we realize, okay, no, Probably the first thing was the most focused or the most reliable. And um, there was a lot of room for spontaneity. And at the same time, as I said, we rehearsed every morning before we started the scenes for the day. 
And um, that's what we did. But not such a long, like, for example, in comparison to Tony Erdman, where we rehearsed over a period of one year, a few months in total, we didn't do that. We did castings and we met several times to read the script, but we didn't rehearse so much in, in uh, before we started to go to the place, to Villa Rombe and Saint. Mm -hmm. To your point about using first takes. I, I always find it so interesting when, when speaking with directors and they, they will say, yeah, I, I ended up using the first take. I'm curious your position on that because I, I, I wonder if it's because, you know, the, the first take, like you're saying, you just kind of go with it and you do your thing. But after that, I think it perhaps leaves, uh, leaves room for overthinking. Yeah, that's what happens, like for maybe 15, 16 takes. <laughs> and yeah. uh, from the 20th, you start to let go again because then you basically probably did everything that is possible. Of course, when a director talks to you and has a wish for something or a suggestion and thinks it could go that way, of course, you have to process it. That means the brain is in another position than before when you just try to act intuitively or whatever and the connection with the partner is really strong. And then you start to realize, okay, I did that and now I have to do that. It's a bit, yeah, it's another, I think it's another area in the brain, probably scientifically speaking. <laughs> right. Um, are you, uh, are you an actor who uh, doesn't mind a lot of takes or, or are you of the feeling of like, after a few, you think you've got it out of you? When the many takes are really about the acting, then it's really interesting and fine and I love it. And I also like the sort of exhaustion to a certain level. There is a boundary and uh, I do not like to cross it. And I think when I say to a director that it's enough and that I can't do more, I mean it. But um, I like the because I definitely feel a change in the approach and in the concentration and in like the when you start to be more at ease like towards the 23rd whatever um with it because you're just there because you cannot think any of anything anymore i like the little change a lot yeah. mm -hmm. well as this story plays out uh there is a, a trial in this trial um <laughs> There's, of course, a lot of talking because that's what happens at, at, at trials. And, you know, we're in a courtroom for, for much of it. Um, and I think in the hands of the wrong director, those scenes could be boring and redundant, but this is not. So kudos to all of you for that. But what I found so fascinating is how the trial plays out, which I, I'm going to assume this is this is how French trials work, where defendants are able to respond in real time to things that are being said by witnesses? Yes, that's what I learned. Uh, I didn't know about that before, too. Um, I think it definitely is, maybe it is a, a rule that's been broken at that point, but the judge in the film just lets it happen. But I'm not, I'm not really sure. In this point, I really trusted Justine and Arthur, who wrote the script. They did so much research and they sat in so many trials and I read everything about it and I had counseling from an actual judge. So I, totally relied on them and never questioned that practice. Yeah. And it, even to the point at one point, I thought, well, even if it's not how they work, maybe this is how they should work, because uh, especially for the purposes of storytelling, it, it, it worked so well. Um, in, in the process of that, um, we hear testimony from uh, Sandra's son, Daniel, who's so wonderful, Milo Machado Grenet. He is just 
superb in this. Tell me a bit about about working with him and and that it's a bit of a a strained dynamic just because of the circumstances of what's going on in their lives. First of all, Milo Machado Gane is a wonderful actor and I can't wait to see more from him. And at the same time, I wish that he's not obliged to do this job, that he can still choose or he doesn't think because this worked out well, he has to do it for a life. Um, because that's ha- that happens when you start really young, you're in kind of a trap also. And I I hope that he finds his actual way of living and it doesn't need to be acting but working with him was very direct and very professional uh very emotional and um at the same time he he has the ability to go deeply into the character and into the feeling of the character and when the work stops he's absolutely out of it he can like switch in a second and became an 11 year old boy after the shooting stopped immediately. And that was really beautiful to see. Yeah. I mean, between everything at the home dealing with, uh, you know, police investigation, I, you know, it's such a different dynamic there with him to when uh, he has a very pivotal scene in the courtroom. He's just uh, superb in, and I can't wait for people to see his performance. Um, another really fascinating moment is when we hear audio of an argument recorded by Sandra's husband, Samuel, and then we see it play out. It is perhaps the most intense moment of the movie. Um, so I'm wondering, was there a, 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 a different feeling on set that day or days? I don't know how long that, that took to, to film, but when you, when you got to that scene, was it a different mood? <laughs> Yes, of course, because uh, the tension in this scene is really high from the yeah. beginning and the circumstances are a bit weird because Sandra doesn't know that her husband is recording the fight and she also doesn't know that he might stage the fight to collect material for writing. So it comes out of the blue and she, I think for a long time, she really tries not to get into it and not to to fight with him because there is no reason. The things that they fight about, and we all know that when you're in a, in a relationship for a long time, the fights somehow spiral. It's always the same topics, and I think it's the same with them. So she, in the first place, she probably thinks that it's the usual thing that's going on, and we can probably fix it in a minute or two or maybe 10. <laughs> but uh, this time something is different, and uh, she decides otherwise and gets into the fight really late, but she does. So the, we, we had two days to film that scene because it ends really violent and we didn't want to do that on the first day because I figured that it would be hard to go back to the beginning where it's pretty relaxed from her side. And um, it was like that. So um, I was right. So we, we filmed the first part until the, the big, let's call it explosion on the first day and the other parts on the second day. But this one was also rehearsed. We really had to find the staging uh, in the house and the positions of the characters. But everything else, I really have to say, the scene is so superbly written that you could just ride through it. It was really beautiful. Yeah, it it is uh, one of the many, many fantastic scenes in this film. Um, Did you... Were there any that you uh, kind of felt a bit of... I don't know if dread is the right word, but you're like, okay, it's, it's time to do this one, one that you felt was going to be a little harder to, quote unquote, get right, uh, more so than others? No. Mm. 
not one of them. I was looking forward to every little scene and I had joy in every little scene. And the partners that I'm working with, like Antoine Renat, Swan Nalo and yeah. Jenny Beth and Sophie Fillier, who um, sadly passed this year. And Milo, of course, was such a pleasure every day. Yeah. Well, I... I I do have to talk about the ending of the movie, which I'm sure you've you've spoken about exhaustively at this point. But, um, you know, it's a big question of what actually happened. And what I will say is there is a verdict in the trial, but a verdict doesn't always mean that we have the answers. So I ask this question not necessarily because I want the answer, but I feel like the answer may have been important for you to know in terms of how you played certain scenes. Do you know what really happened? that day at the chalet? No, I don't. Mm. I asked Justine several times and she didn't answer the question for reasons. And as soon as we started working, I also realized that it's not really important. It's really important what we think about the story. It's important what every spectator, every viewer thinks about the characters. It has so much to do with our own perception of a couple of successful people, of adult people, of relationships of mothers and children and fathers and children. You know, all the things we project are important. And she really built kind of a, how can I say that, like a something around the truth that mm -hmm. we cannot really get through. So I heard lots of opinions about the truth that really happened that day. And it's always really interesting what people have in mind. Have you heard, th like, do people have theories other than what was presented in the movie? Yeah, there are also people that say the sun did it and stuff. So. Okay. So <laughs> Pretty wild. I did have a bit of a discussion the other day with someone where I, uh, there was at one point that I did wonder, but I was like, but there's no way because he's the one who finds his dad, unless that is also not the truth. So I, I did start wondering during the movie, would we see, would we find out something that changed our opinions about the discovery of his father as well. So that's that's really interesting. <laughs> uh, it's the, the movie, it's I, I love that it is a conversation piece in that way. Um, mm -hmm. And and exactly what you said, uh, you know, when the movie ended, I was like, oh, no, but I want to know. But I was like, but actually, no, I don't, because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. So in in those ways, I that's that's what I love about it, and and I suppose this answers uh, your answer already answered this other question. I wondered uh, that that means there Justine did not film a scene to give herself the option of whether she wanted to include it. Uh, there are some scenes uh, that we shot that are not in the film, mm, but but not to do with the end. No, no, right. no, not at all. But there are some additional scenes, yeah. And it, I think the decision had to do with language and mm. uh, the French, how much French we could use and how much English we could use because there was sort of a rule that we had to follow. Right, right. Um, that, that is interesting because there is one point uh, in court where uh, your character is supposed to be speaking French and she stops and says, I, I just, I need to speak in English. Was that a your decision or that was a script decision? That was a decision we made together, and that also had to do with this 50-50 agreement yeah. um, uh, of language. Yeah, I learned the whole scene in French. I started to prep it, and then she decided it was not long before we we did it. She, she decided to switch. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I mean, as we hear, your English is fantastic, and it's. I, I wondered at some point how how fluent you are in French. If you aren't, I, I it you play it very well. 
Thank you. It depends on the day and I don't know. It's always very different. I understand that. I took it for eight years, studied for eight years in school, and I can read it better than I can speak it. So that's that's where I yeah, am with you it. You have more time. Yeah, of exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, Sandra, you are just fantastic in this. Uh, and I hope really everyone uh, who gets a chance to see it, it wherever they live does because it's, it's just a fantastic film. And congratulations on this on Zone of Interest. And I, I hope and think we will be seeing you in the months to come. Thank you very, very much. Well, I know I say it a lot here and I will say it again. I could have chatted with her for hours about her work this year and these movies. So my thanks to Sandra Ula. You can see her in Anatomy of a Fall when that hits theaters on October 13th, just a couple weeks, and in The Zone of Interest starting December 8th, also in theaters. Um, that said, that is it for this episode of The Awardist. Joey and Maureen, thank you so much for being here. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. And I will um, talk shit about Dream Scenario on another podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's coming up. It's coming up. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, all right. Thanks so much to all of you for listening. If you like what you're hearing here on The Awardist, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials. We're at EW on... Ugh, X, formerly known as Twitter, sure, fine, I'll say it, and at Entertainment <laughs> Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We will see you back here next week on The Awardist and every day at EW.com. This episode of The Awardist is hosted and produced by Jared Hall and produced and edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>